glad you're here. Happy Easter. My name is Bree, and I am one of your community pastors. Woo! All right. Um, Jesus' vision was that his Father's kingdom would invade earth through his spirit-filled church. That's us. And Park Hill Church is built around this vision. We believe that Jesus' vision becomes our reality as we partner together and we practice his way in our city in San Diego. And we do this by being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. Amen? So would you guys join me this morning for the reading of the living word of God? Would you stand with me? I'm going to be reading from John chapter 10, verses 22 through 33, and the words are on the screen. Starting in 22, then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. And the Jews who were gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, he is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from, you, from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. This is the word of the Lord. Amazing. You can be seated. Thank you, Bree. Happy Easter, everybody. He is risen. Yeah, he, he's risen. And I noticed some of y'all wanted to read the Bible out loud. That was amazing. You guys are in. You guys are in. So, yeah, welcome. Welcome to Park Hill Church, everybody. If you're new or if you're visiting, we're so glad, so glad you're here. My name is Evan Wickham. My wife, Sandy, and I have the privilege of leading this church. And I'm just going to jump right in. We heard the text, John 10. We're going to get back into the text. Today... Billions of people around the world are gathering to celebrate the bodily resurrection of an itinerant peasant teacher from ancient Nazareth. So today we're asking this core question. This is our driving question. Who is Jesus? It's a question our world keeps coming back to. We can't get away. It's like we can't escape the guy. As a society, after 2,000 years of crusades and abuse scandals in the church and all kinds of other problems in Christendom, people are still asking, who is Jesus? On magazine covers, 
It's like we can't get away from him. Was he just a teacher with great things to say? Was he more like a political revolutionary, like a subversive, stick-it-to-the-man, anti-establishment guy, but with a Bible, you know? Was he more like a religious icon or a religious uh, embodiment of God or something? Everyone has a theory, and it can be hard to tell fact from fiction. So just to kick us off, uh, I'm going to play a little one-minute video from the Alpha guys over in, over in the UK. They do a great job. And, and this is a video of them asking folks on the street for their take on Jesus in London. Who is Jesus? Mm. Uh, uh, um, uh, I think... Uh, uh, I believe he was a person. Um... He's the son of God. I don't believe Jesus ever really existed. The son of God? If I have to answer that question, I would say God. Uh, he plays on the wing for Chelsea. If you read the Bible, I don't think I could believe in all of that. Everything. <laughs> you can be any, but for me, he's everything. Who is Jesus? To be honest with you, I don't know. I'm not super religious or anything, so. I mean, he, I guess he's a savior or something. <laughs> Personally, I think that Jesus was probably a really cool dude who lived a long time ago and gave great advice to people, and it snowballed from there. Okay, so start with some personal context. I was raised in Christianity, uh, to which some might respond, that's awesome, Evan, that's why you are a Christian now, right? By the way, we have Bibles to pass out if you want. Uh, We're going to get back into John 10 soon. So raise your hand if you don't have a Bible. We'll get you one. So I was raised Christian. Uh, And and the the immediate thought is that's why you are a Christian. That's why you're a pastor. Yes, I'll actually concede part of that. Yes and no. Both are true. Yes and no. Uh, Let me explain. I came from a family of worship pastors, worship leaders, my parents, Worship pastors still. My wife and I love leading worship together. Ever since high school, we've led worship together. My brother is like this well-known Christian rock star worship leader guy. My sister is, my sister is an accountant, but <laughs> an, incredible, an incredible singer who has led many people in worship too. So my grandpa on my mom's side was a tongue-speaking, Bible-memorizing, kindest, most loving Jesus worshiper ever. I was raised Christian. This is my context. And that never bothered me until my junior high graduation. 1994, Friends was reigning the television screen. And uh, private Christian school, private Christian school. I got my fresh copy of the eighth grade yearbook. Uh, I opened it up to the future stars section. And I saw all the popular people, most likely to succeed. There they are. Best smile, there he is. Best fashion, there she is, whatever. And then I froze. In horror, I saw me, and I was voted most likely to be a pastor. (laughs) The reason you laugh is the reason I felt deep shame in that moment. I was furious at my class, and I was embarrassed. And then I distinctly remember having my first little faith crisis. So I was 13, and I remember thinking two things. Number one, why am I embarrassed about being a Christian leader in the future if Christianity is true? And, and number the second realization, or is it true? Was I handed this thing that doesn't line up with reality? 
This was my first little faith crisis for the first time. I realized just because I was raised in this thing doesn't make this thing true. That's not, that's not how the logic works. And 15 years later, I had a similar realization from a different angle. I spent some time in Saudi Arabia uh, where conversion from Islam is punishable by death and church buildings are forbidden. I was there with written permission from the office of the Saudi king, me and two other Christian leaders, to visit one of the only legal Christian churches in the nation inside the king's private oil company run by some American Christians that like to worship Jesus. The king wanted them to be happy, so he let them have some visitors. As I walked around the streets of Dammam in Saudi, I realized two things. Number one, I looked around and I'm like, if I was born in Saudi, instead of San Diego, and my parents were Wahhabi Muslims instead of white hippies, I would totally be a Muslim right now. Like the chances are basically 100%. And, and then realization number two was being raised with a certain Christian religion. Do you have slide five there? Being raised with a certain religion doesn't make it true, whether it's Christian or Hindu or Islam or atheism, your upbringing is not what makes your beliefs true. So regardless of where our religious convictions came from, here's the, here's the thing. We have to weigh our convictions on their own terms, on their own merits. So I stand before you today, a passionate Jesus follower, absolutely raised to be a Christian, and that doesn't bother me. <laughs> it should not bother anybody uh, because I've thought through Christianity on its own terms. I've basically come face to face with Jesus on his own terms in his own language. So maybe you're here and you've identified as a Christian all your life and you have zero doubts and you're just happily following Jesus on Easter. Or maybe you're questioning your faith and you're just, or maybe you're just struggling. Legitimately, this Easter is hard and you're going through a tough time. Or maybe you wouldn't identify as a Christian at all and you're here because it's Easter or whatever. I don't know why you would be, you're here and you're not a Christian, that's great. Whatever you're here for, uh, I would love to invite all of us to kind of, as best we can, wipe the slate and, and face the question afresh, who is Jesus? So just to start here, basically every historian on earth agrees he existed. And he, and he made big news, vir virtually every historian. So the ancient historian Josephus, he's one of several that talks about Jesus, who's not a Christian. Josephus is not a Christian, but he writes about Jesus around the time of Jesus and says, basically, there was about this time Jesus, a doer of wonderful works. And then he goes on to talk about the fact that Jesus died. He calls it a fact. And then he talks about the alleged resurrection of his followers. So his followers preached that his resurrection happened. So, so that doesn't prove it's true, but it proves that the historians knew he existed uh, all the way down. Um, so there's evidence outside the New Testament. I'm taking you on a journey here. But most of our evidence for Jesus comes from inside the New Testament. And that shouldn't bother you. Uh, you might be like, wasn't the New Testament written like forever ago? Yes, and that's why it knows about Jesus. <laughs> that's why. So wait a minute. We don't know if the New Testament was changed. 2,000 years is a long time. Actually, we, we do know, and it's a science that people practice every day called textual criticism. And here's how it works in a nutshell. The more, you have the next, yeah, textual criticism, the more manuscript copies you have, plus the earlier they are, equals the more you're sure what the original said. 
That's textual criticism. It's practiced everywhere, not just in the church. By anyone who deals with old stuff, practices this science. And when it comes to the New Testament, it is shocking how many early copies we still have. So watch this. I think Drew made a slide that will unfold before your eyes. Here, Drew. Yeah, here it is. So, so here it is. This is fun. So we've got, can you do the next one? Her- Herodotus. So that's a really old, that's a really, really old text written about 488 BC. But the earliest existing copy of it we have today wasn't for, th- it's 1,300 years older than the original. But we still refer to it as history. So, but we only have eight copies from AD 90. You see, you see how this works. So scroll the next one down. Thucydides is very similar. Next one down. Livy's Roman history. This is a little newer. We would call this a little more reliable. It was written around the time of Jesus' birth. But the earliest copy we have is still a thousand years later than the original copy. So, so, but we consider this reliable. Next slide. Caesar's Gallic War. This one is very similar to Livy's Roman history. You see how this works. But now when we get to the New Testament, it's actually kind of uh, jarring how profound of amount of evidence that we have. Look, look at this last slide. The New Testament, written, uh, you know, right at the generation after Jesus, we have by AD 130, that's potentially one lifetime after Jesus, we have copies from that time still. And we have 5,000 Greek copies, 10,000 in Latin, and 9,300 in other languages that date back that far. So, What I'm trying to show you is that every secular historian worth his or her salt agrees that the 27 books you have in your hand that are called the New Testament, they stand on their own. When it comes to accurately reflecting the original copy that was written down, it's wild how much confidence we are able to have in this thing. Uh, No other ancient text comes close. So, okay, so this is is some reason... (laughs) To look at Jesus afresh, isn't it? It's like, I, mean, I, I don't often think of, of, of all of these signposts that point to Jesus, but this still doesn't answer who he is. Who is Jesus? We know he was fully human. He had a body, emotions. But some say, sure, we know he existed. He's probably a great dude, maybe a great teacher, teacher, but no more than that. To suggest that he was, you know, like the son of God. Uh, that's going too far. So there's, fir- there's two questions here. The first is, and we don't often think of this question, but what did Jesus think about himself? What was Jesus' view of Jesus? Jesus' followers should be highly interested in this. Because if Jesus didn't think he was God or the fulfillment of God's promises, then that's the end of the story and we get to go live how we want, right? And do whatever we want with our lives. The second question is, okay, if, what did Jesus think about himself? And then was he right about himself? Did he think accurately about himself? So the wild thing about Jesus, when you think about Jesus' thoughts, is that Jesus' teaching 
it's centered on himself. So every other religious leader you can think of, Muhammad, Krishna, they all had great things to say, and I think we can learn from other religious teachers, 100%. But, but the thing that other religious teachers con- consistently do, the great ones, is they say, don't look at me. Look at God or look within yourself. All of them said that that is all but Jesus. Jesus, the perfect picture of humility, he didn't say just, you know, look over, look, search for God or look within. He said, look at me. Come to me, he said. Just like all the great religious teachers, Jesus knew that humans, that you crave meaning. You crave purpose. In your best and worst moments, we all wonder, is this what life's about? We have a spiritual hunger, the sense that no temporary experience, however pleasurable, it's always a thin veil that leads to a, sm- a, a slight void on the other side. Jesus knows this about us. But unlike any other great religious, religious teacher, Jesus said, hey, I am the bread of life. If you want that hunger filled, come to me. We all have habits and addictions and behaviors in our lives we don't like, right? Jesus said, if the sun sets you free, you will be really free. And what about that anxiety, that emotional weight we carry and the shame and the fear, the existential depression? Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus is saying, if you want peace of mind, come to me. And then, and then Jesus said, if you receive me, you receive God. If you've seen me, you've seen God. So we open with reading from John 10. This is where Jesus says one of those things. So you're going to want to open your Bible to John 10 and follow along. And, and, and Jesus, he identifies himself, verse 24, the Jews who were there gathered around him said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us clearly. <laughs> Almost nothing would prepare them for what Jesus says next. Jesus says, first, I did tell you, but you didn't believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you don't believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep, my people, They listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. Jesus called this life to the full. Do you want life to the full? Full of meaning and purpose forever. Jesus says, that's what I give you. And then verse 30, he says this radical quote. I and the Father are one. A claim tantamount to being God. This is blasphemy in the eyes of the people that were listening. So they pick up stones and try to kill Jesus, but Jesus says, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of those do you stone me? And they said, we're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy. They heard him clearly. He says, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So you put all the pieces together. It's clear that Jesus... (laughs) had some really grand ideas about himself. He claimed to share identity with the creator, with Israel's God. And so then, if we're thinking about this, the next question is, was he right? Either he's right, and this changes everything, 
a human embodied God and gave us a way of organizing as people and a way of living with our bodies and our minds and our relationships. Either God became a human and gave us this way to live or he's the most successful liar or narcissist in human history. But does this sound like the teachings of a narcissist to you? Love your neighbor as yourself. Do to other people as you would have them do to you. Love your enemy. And these teachings have been the foundation of our entire civilization ever since, right? Many of our laws were originally founded on Jesus' teaching. Think about the tech industry. Think about scientific discovery. How far have we come in 10 years in tech? Very, very different world 10 years ago based on information exchange and how we use the internet and social media and all that. So we've, we've changed a lot in tech in 10 years, but in 2,000 years, no one has ever improved on the moral teachings of Jesus. They're the greatest words ever spoken. They're the kind of words you'd expect God to say. And even more than that, more than his teaching, we have his character, you guys. It's the kind of character you'd expect God to have. His love for the marginalized, no one was talking about that. It was survival of the fittest. It was consume or be consumed. But Jesus taught about feeding hungry people that don't help you. And healing the sick and leading the way and care for the poor. I mean, Jesus literally heals a soldier in the act of arresting him. And Jesus ultimately lays his life down for that soldier, his enemies, saying, in his own words, he, he, he lives into his own teaching by saying, greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Even Time Magazine called Jesus the most persistent symbol of purity, selflessness, and love in the history of humans. And so the real test of this character, anyone's character, you think you're a good person until you have pain, right? Or, or <laughs> relational fallout. When you get stressed out, the real you comes out. Um, under the pressure of the cross, Jesus' true character flows out. If you were here on Friday night, we heard his true character. The seven sayings that came from Jesus while he was being bled, suffocated, crucified to death. And the first recorded words of his mouth, as he's already been whipped and beaten and scourged and nailed, first words out of his mouth from the cross is, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That's not the character of someone with identity issues. That's the kind of character you'd expect from God among us. That's the kind of person I would trust with my life. I would trust that his words about how I live are better for me than my own ideas. Who is Jesus? The man who claimed to be the creator embodied. But you have to understand, he didn't just say, believe that I'm God and you're okay. That's just believe in this doctrine or whatever. No, that wasn't the reason he wanted people to see who he was. The primary claim he had wasn't just see that, I, see that God came, look at this trick. No, it was his primary claim was that he was the one bringing the kingdom of God. 
the kingdom, we don't use kingdom language in America. We, we got rid of a kingdom and started a republic democracy. Uh, so kingdom language isn't, uh, we're not used to it, but they were. And when Jesus said, I'm bringing a kingdom, they knew what that meant, where justice would finally be done in the streets and the brokenness everywhere will finally be fixed and corrupt governments that are oppressing people will be brought down and the hungry would be fed and the poor and those that are orphans and lonely would find family forever. They would belong. Jesus claimed that he was bringing this and that whoever trusts in him would receive it. Healed and belonging in the family of, and forgiven and part of the kingdom of God. And, and there's hope beyond this life because Jesus will be the king of a multi-ethnic, transnational, global family that he's going to raise from the dead. To live with him and one another in perfect relationship in the new heavens and new earth, he calls it. A whole remade world. This is what he claimed to be bringing. This is what he was about. Was he right? And we're here on Easter because we've heard God's answer to that question. Was Jesus right? God's answer, God raised Jesus from the dead. By raising Jesus from the dead, God shouted a universe-wide yes to Jesus' identity and authority as the king of this perfect kingdom of love. God raised Jesus from the dead. You guys, God raised Jesus from the dead. And the disciples instantly knew what that meant. We have to cut through a couple layers of culture and Easter and church on Easter and maybe go, go eat a honey-baked ham on Easter because the only way to celebrate the resurrection of the Jewish Messiah is by eating pig for some reason. I don't know. So... So we have to cut through all the cultural stuff and, and realize what the disciples heard. Jesus is alive. I see Jesus. That means the kingdom's here. It's really here. Hope completely has been concrete and manifest among us now. Everything Jesus said about the world and the power of the spirit, it's all true. This is why the resurrection transformed scaredy cat disciples locked in a house because they were wanted men because they were associated as Jesus' posse and, and they knew that they were next. And so they're fearful. Jesus is dead. Jesus failed. Overnight, they're shouting. We've seen him. He's alive. We've seen him and he's actually doing what he said. And they did end up dying torturous, horrific deaths, deaths willingly. What would have shifted them like that? From complete hopelessness to complete boldness because they knew not just that Jesus was God, but that God raised Jesus from the dead and then validated the kingdom among us. And so they immediately started saying things like this, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he'll raise us too. No wonder they're fearless. And then they put two and two together and realized, oh my gosh, if God's spirit raised Jesus and Jesus said, receive my spirit, that means the same power that raised Jesus is now empowering us to live with hope in this suffering and in this pain and the sickness. And then that made them pray for each other like this. I pray that you may know the hope which he's called you and his incomparably great power for us who believe 
That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every other name. The disciples realized that because this is all true, God at any moment can manifest his power in us. Do you live like this? Do you live like this? Because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead has been activating hope in the hearts of Jesus' followers across the world ever since then. And the result is this, not just this, but the global movement. We're singing in different languages to the same Lord. Unheard of. Unheard of until Jesus. We're, we're singing in different languages. Christianity is without precedent in world history. Swept the world, no parallel, still happening. We thought it was 2.3. It's actually a new study this year, 2022, put out by Gordon Conwell Seminary. 2.56 billion will identify as Christians by mid-2022, expected to top 3.3 billion by 2050 of every race, continent, nationality, economic, social, intellectual background. Christianity, you might see some decline in your Western enlightened university. You might see some Christian decline. But for every one deconstructing Westerner with lighter skin, you have five bolstered, fiery, evangelistic, newly converted, dark-skinned people all over the global south. That is just the stat of the day. So, so you have ex exploding in Africa and Asia, billions across the world claiming their lives are being changed by the risen Christian Jesus and celebrating as he continues to work in their communities by the power of the Spirit. And get this, the same Spirit that's doing that is here in this room. Yeah. And he's not just an ether in the room, he's here in you. After his resurrection, one of the first things Jesus did was breathe on his disciples and command them to receive the Holy Spirit. And he's like, the same spirit that was with me at the cross that I breathed my last with re-entered my lungs and now he's coming for you. I rose up on Sunday and I breathed my spirit onto you. Now receive that same spirit right now. This is why next week, this church is starting a series called Receive the Holy Spirit, where we are receiving Christ's words into our own bodies, his own power, his own resurrection life. So what, what we should understand is that right now in the middle of your trouble, this is what this means, in the middle of your pain, the resurrection power of Jesus is ready and available to, to, to let you experience the hope of the world that carries Jesus through the cross. It carried the disciples through torture and it carries you through pain. The true hope that San Diego longs for. So our city, America's finest, right? San Diego. The true hope of, the Amer of America's finest city is Christ living in you. Christ alive and well moving through you. San Diego is still topping the list of America's happiest cities, by the way. Um, and now, this year, we just got number one on the list of America's most unaffordable cities. We beat San Francisco this winter. I don't know. I don't know which one. I don't know where you're at on that. So, um, 
I have no opinion. But, uh, but it is wild. Because this city is gorgeous, right? I love San Diego. There's art and culture and design and year-round hiking. Where do you get that in America? Year-round hiking, surfing, just slightly thicker wetsuit, and you can do it all year. And amazing food, amazing food everywhere, just hours away from anything, right? I love where we get to live. It's, it's San Diego is so great that it almost fools you into thinking that good food and that great drink after work and good weather, and if you could just make it into the housing market, then that's all you need out of life. San Diego almost fools you into that narrative because there's this outside world. I call, it's a glittering outside that's beautiful. Coronado Beach, college campuses that look like resorts. Everywhere you go, there's a California burrito calling your name. That's a good one everywhere. Or a great brewery or a tap of flights. Like currently, number, this is random stat on bestplaces.net. San Diego hit number three in the U.S. for dating. I don't know what that is. Whatever. But this is, this is the glitter. And I'm saying that to emphasize the glittery outside. This is the shiny outside world of San Diego. Never mind the fact that you have to pay four grand a month just to rent a room. So, so actually, there's a whole, the, the, the poor don't get to enjoy anything I just described. But we don't like to talk about that. Right. San Diego has this beautiful outside world, but there's this dark underbelly. Homelessness has always been an issue here. And we're, we're now finding out this year about 85% of San Diego's homeless population became homeless while living here. And there seems to be a troubling increase this year in homelessness for people over 55 years of age. Drug use rose in our, is, rose in our city this year 25-year high among men, meth being the drug of choice, addicted to sex, addicted to tech. More, more people than ever are tied to their phones, glued to social media in unhealthy ways, and we are in denial about it, you guys. We are in deni we're not even ready to talk about our social media addiction. We're still in denial. We laugh about it. This is the dark inside world that's crept into the church now. On the ch in the church. On the outside, you guys, we're doing great, right? Good marriage, come into church, put together, educated, good job, good family, but there's no inner life, no shalom. And so while that looks churchy and good on the outside, you still have to run and stay ahead with distraction after distraction. Hey, let's, let's hit this new bar, let's hit this new restaurant, let's see this new band, oh, let's go on vacation, oh, let's, let's think about moving to New let's go, 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 go. And people have to outrun the void and the emptiness that's deep inside of them because there is nothing there. And that ancient mantra, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die, that's San Diego to a T. But we know that one day, we do die. In the meantime, we try not to think about it because this outside world is beautiful. But it's a facade, it's a mask. This outside world that we think we're living in, it has no clue how to deal with suffering. Because a California burrito with a corona in San Diego's sun, as fantastic as that is, it is not enough to get you through a divorce. 
A great day of surf, three-foot sets with glassy conditions, not enough to get you through cancer. That really nice pair of $200 jeans. Looks good. Look exactly where the rips are. It's awesome. It's just... It's just not enough to get you through the highs and lows, the sufferings and the pain of life. A friend of mine, Mark Sayers, he wrote this book, Disappearing Church, and he calls our problem reaching for the godless utopia. Another election, another letdown. Another iPhone, another letdown. Another drink, another letdown. Another relationship, another fiance, another husband, another wife, another girlfriend, boyfriend, home, career, another move somewhere, another letdown. It's just never it. It's never the thing. Because listen, we have to realize we can't have the kingdom without the king. You cannot have the perks of the kingdom without the person of the king. And why would you want it anyway? The king's the best part of it. He's the kindest, most generous. Good grief. You can't have the justice and the peace and the hope and the equality and the prosperity and the healing that you long for. You can't have it without Jesus the king right in the middle of it. And the good news, so that's kind of, that's a pastoral, urgent call. Here's the good news, you guys, that Jesus is the king. He has come. He's back from the dead. The kingdom is here. And every one of you are invited. Every one of you. And that's the good news. And that's the Jesus who keeps changing people's lives. He keeps changing Evan, my life, right here in this church, in my community group. Jesus, Jesus keeps changing my life. You are invited into his kingdom, no matter what you've done or what you haven't done. No matter where you've come from or where you're going, the hope he offers you is concrete. And he's everything you need to carry you through the pain and the suffering and the hurt all the way through your own death to where your body will rise because Jesus is dead. And everything up to then, he's got you. Doesn't mean it'll be easy, but he's got you. And so the simple call for all of us today in Jesus' words, three words, this is the call, everyone. Repent, believe, follow. Repent has a bad rap, but all repent means rethink reality if all of this is true. Rethink, if Jesus is the the benevolent, omnipotent, perfectly good king who has your best intentions in mind, rethink your life because that's really good news. You should rethink toward it. And then then believe. Means lean, lean your weight on this reality. There's, it's, it's not just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There's more. There's a life to come. There's a new heaven, new earth. There's more than just, oh, I'm just stuck in my patterns. There's more. There's resurrection power that transformed, shaken in their boots, disciples, into preaching to their deaths. That same power. Trust. And then finally, follow. Jesus' favorite command seems to be, come follow me. Come and see and follow. And, and that means, come, come be my disciple, right? Come be my apprentice. Apprentice. Walk with me, work with me, do what I do. Learn and relearn what it means to be a human being. 
Wrap your identity around Jesus. Where's your, where, where do you get your identity from? Jesus invites you to bring, to gently bring your whole self and wrap your identity around him. Your body, your mind, your money, your sexuality, your ethnicity, your goals, your career, your relationships. He's saying, I love all of that. Jesus is saying, I love everything about you and I have the best intentions for you in all of those things, more than you can possibly imagine. Submit your whole person to me and I will lead you into life to the fullest. Come and follow. So, so as we follow Jesus, we learn to live into the kingdom. This reality that he's bringing, and, and listen to this. I, I'm talking about Christianity and how to prove it, and like Jesus rose from the dead, and here's, here's the textual criticism and all that. But listen, Jesus is not looking for converts to Christianity. Jesus is looking for apprentices to the kingdom of God. Okay, so he's not interested in cultural Christianity. When you repent, believe, and begin following the risen Jesus, you become an apprentice of the man who was God with us, and he empowers you to learn how to do it like he does. So he's calling all of you. All of you. You grew up Christian like, like I did, he's calling me right now. If you grew up an atheist, or if you grew up Eastern mysticism or Western an atheism or a skeptic or a believer or educated or not, wherever you come from, wherever you're going next, Jesus is calling you by name. He sees you right where you are, right in the little white folding chair you're sitting on. He sees you. He sees your current pain, all of your past and all of your future. He sees what you don't see yet. And he's got all of it. He sees you and he's calling you to rethink, repent, trust, follow. And the best way to say yes is what Jesus calls baptism. In two weeks, we're gonna have our baptism Sunday. Every, every first Sunday of the month, every first Sunday we baptize people, we put a big tank here. If you have never said yes, repent, trust, follow, orient myself around Jesus. And you've never said that. We're inviting you to come into the waters and say yes to Jesus on May 1st. Most of you here have probably been baptized. I'd love a show of hands. Let's be, let's be bold about it. How many of you have been baptized? That's a strong majority of the room. Well done. So I have a word for you. Before you go off and eat your pig for whatever, um, hopefully you have a very restful, awesome, worshipful day. Before we eat and drink the bread and the cup, I just want you to think about this. Think about the fact that virtually every good thing that you have going right now is a direct byproduct of the first Easter. Everything, all the way down to the hospital that cared for you in the last couple years, the fabric of society, the way you were educated. Everything was affected by this peasant embodiment of creator God 
who claimed to be bringing the rule and reign of God and his body came out of the ground. Everything, when his body came out of the ground, that, that flowed into everything good you experience now. So I want you to spend Easter and, and the rest of the week just consciously turning to that awareness and being like, oh yeah, Jesus is, Jesus is the why for that. And Jesus gave me this. And, and turn to that awareness with gratitude. Not just gratitude at the ether, but gratitude at the person who has now breathed himself and his presence in you. Think about the Virgin Mary. What if, um, I don't know, what if there was a 14-year-old girl sitting up here and, and she was the Virgin Mary and, and you knew she was and she was pregnant with Jesus and you knew it and you're like, that, that's her. Like she, she's got like in here, she has God inside. This is, you, you wonder why the early church called Mary and still does the mother of God. The Catholic and Orthodox call Mary the mother. She, how would you treat, I'm, just a question, how would you treat Mary? If she was here at Park Hill sitting on that chair and you're like, she has God, fetus God. What is, how would you treat her? It's like, I, I hope I get to say just my, hi, I hope, if she even remembers my name, I'll die, I could die. <laughs> like how, so, so now I want you to take that vision and then spread it around the room because Jesus has revealed that every single person who believes has been has been deposited the person who created the world inside of you. The person of the Holy Spirit, present at creation and cross, resurrection, and now, is now uniquely inside everyone who believes. Say thank you for that today. And say thank you for that in the other that you're with and the person that you host, the person you extend hospitality to today. Suffering's a part of life. Some of you are here and you're like, that's great that I have the power of the Spirit. Life is hard. And if that's you, I want, to hear, I want you to hear the story, your story, resurrection stories. Your story's not over yet. You know the end. And the, if, if the worst thing life can throw at you is death, death has been defeated, then that means the message of Easter is not, hey, just, just come to church and pretend it's okay. Come to church and hold a poinsettia and pretend it's okay and have a happy face. No. If, if, if the worst thing life can throw at you is death, and if death has been defeated, then the message of Easter is you are never alone again. No matter what you're up against, there's healing for you right now. There's hope because Jesus is back from the dead. You guys, Jesus won. I don't know how else to say it. Like, he won. Jesus won the war on evil. And now it's only a matter of time before he comes back, raises everybody, his whole family from the dead, and makes the whole world new forever. It's only a matter of time. Um, so whatever you're up against in your cynical workplace or college or 
whatever. Uh, we are the community that lives with hope because we believe in a universe where there's a dead Messiah who's come back from the grave. And if that's true, what, anything is possible, anything. So we're gonna come to the table with that, with gratitude. The Holy Spirit is in you. Heavenly Father, would you come now, breathe on us your Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Thank you, God, that you've chosen to be present through Jesus. And now, Lord, we get to experience your presence through eating and drinking the bread and cup. Thank you.